We'll be in Romans 8 today. So if you want to turn to Romans 8, um, that'll be good. I hope that sometime during your week, whether it's here, whether it's home, when you're alone, that you do raise your hands to God in praise. It's biblical. It's a posture of worship. If you don't do it, think about it. Now, we heard earlier this morning that um, Israel was waiting in hope for this coming Messiah. And yet we were at one time a people without hope, a people cut off. And that all changed when the Messiah came. And so it is the next coming of the Messiah that we await. We are on the other side of the cross, the other side of his first coming. So today we look for his return with eager anticipation and with great faith and hope. See, hope is at the bedrock of our Christian faith. And as we enter into this Advent season today, our focus will be on hope. And we will look to Romans 8 today to examine the Apostle Paul's message of hope. So I'll be reading from Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies... For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Pray with me now. Holy and gracious God, may your Holy Spirit give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which Christ has called us. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance among us and the greatness of his power for those who believe. Amen. As we look at Romans 8 today, it's important to remember that we stand on the shoulders of some pretty profound truths that Paul has already covered in this epistle. See, the journey through Romans is a, it's a pilgrimage through the heart of Christian theology. And today's passage, Romans 8, Romans 8 is at the center. It's the centerpiece of the book of Romans. Now, you may not have thought that when you read it. You may not have realized that. But Romans 8 is at the heart of the book of Romans. So in the earlier chapters, Paul has described the universal need for salvation. He unveils the reality of human sinfulness and just how fallen we are, whether among the Gentiles who suppress the knowledge of God or even the Jews who possess the law and find themselves equally accountable to God's righteous judgment. You see, the reality of God's plan of redemption begins to shine when we place it up against this backdrop of sin, of human brokenness, the guilt and the suffering that are a part of sin. And just as Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness in Romans 4, Paul later unfolds the truth of justification by faith. And this theme permeates the rest of the book. Faith in Christ that both Jew and Gentile can be justified and declared righteous before God. And then Paul goes on to expound the benefits of this justification in Romans 5. No longer at enmity with God, reconciled to God. No longer an enemy with God, welcomed into his presence through the work of Christ. And then in Romans 6, Paul talks about how that grace begins to transform us and change us as we think on our justification, on Christ's death and resurrection, the old self is crucified and believers are called to live in the newness of life, free from the dominion of sin. But yet, in Romans 7, Paul lays out the struggle that we still face, the daily struggle that we still have with sin. You see, sin lives in our flesh. And as long as our flesh is alive, sin will be with us. And so Paul talks about how difficult that is. And you know how difficult it is. We all know how difficult it is because we're just like Paul in that regard. So as we look to Romans 8, let us do so with the awareness that we are standing on all this that Paul has already laid out for us plan that begins with the depths of human sin and brokenness to the suffering that we endure today and to the radiant glory that awaits us. Dr. John Fesco, a professor at RTS, uh, says, man can know God in several ways. The first of which is to know him as creator. 
And we read this in the first chapter of Romans. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.20. See, Paul tells us man, every man, knows that there is a God. Whether he'll confess it or not or whether he'll suppress it, it doesn't matter. The Bible tells us everyone knows that there is a God. And it can be observed just from creation, just what we see from general revelation. Man has known this since the beginning of time. Man knows that God made everything. This understanding is present in everything God made, including his people. Because God created his people in his image, and he wrote his law on our hearts. No excuse. None whatsoever. But there's another way we can know God. Calvin puts in the first four books of his Institutes of Christian Religion under the title, Book One, of the Knowledge of God the Creator. Book Two, he titles, Of the Knowledge of God the Redeemer. Calvin says this about the relationship between God as Creator and Redeemer. What Paul calls the wisdom of God is this magnificent theater of heaven and earth, full of innumerable miracles, and from which we should wisely learn about God. But because we have yet to change much in this area, he brings us back to the faith of Christ Jesus, which non-believers look down on because to them it seems silly. You see, Calvin and Paul are both showing us that knowing God as the one who made the world is simply not enough to save us. We can only know God as the Redeemer through Christ. You know, the first verse of this chapter, which I didn't read, tells us that because of Christ, there is now no condemnation for the people who have sinned, for the people of Christ. See, God is known as the one who made the world, the just judge, the one who saved us through Christ. And Paul will show us today that those who are in Christ know God in another way, as Father. Do you know it's unheard of in the ancient Jewish world for a Jewish person to even think of calling God Father? Unheard of. Even today, if you go to Jewish writings on the Internet, perhaps, they don't even spell out God's name. They put G-D. And yet we, through the torn veil of Christ's flesh, call him Father. Father, just as Christ did. Father. It's why I used the Lord's Prayer this morning as our corporate reading. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In verse 12, Paul tells us that we owe the flesh nothing. Our obligation is to the Spirit to live according to his holy desires. As a believer, remember and recognize the power that we possess 
Do not go back to Egypt. Do not return to the voice of your old master. At the beginning of verse 13, it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, Paul doesn't think Christians can lose their faith. Romans 8 is mostly about how secure our faith in Christ is. This then is why we're debtors. We are debtors to the God who loved us and saved us and is leading us home to the land that we have been promised, the eventual new creation, our inheritance. So we shall forever be in God's debt. We should recognize that daily and live accordingly. Debtors, after all, are under an obligation. It's a safe assumption on my part that everybody in this room at some point in their life has had a debt. And for some people, that debt feels heavy. And it's always there, squirreling away every penny to erase that debt, to get rid of that debt. We all live in houses. Most of us have probably had a mortgage at one time or another. And think about how long you struggled and saved and worked to get rid of that debt, to make that debt go away. This is a debt we can't make go away. There's no paying off this debt. So instead, we live in gratitude. We live in gratefulness. We love others. We love each other. We love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Because we have a debt we can't repay. You know, verse 13 talks about killing sin. It's a call to renounce sin and put it to death. This verse is what John Owen had in mind in his book, The Mortification of Sin. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a call to renounce sin and put it to death. We're to put the deeds of the body, that is to terminate Every use of our body that serves our sinful, selfish appetites rather than God. And I know some of you are probably a little bit shocked this morning. Wow, Mike's laying it on pretty heavy about sin. He doesn't usually do that. Preachers talk about sin. We have to. And I'm talking about it because Paul's talking about it. And Paul tells us (coughs) that our adoption or sonship involves a new identity, a new intimacy, a new level of intimacy, and an inheritance. The word for in this verse links to the previous verse, where Paul says the believer is not obligated to the flesh, not obligated to sin, instead grateful, adopted children of God, led by the Spirit of God. Tim Keller says that our minds, our lives are an expression of our minds. What's going on up here? And many Christians try to control themselves with law-centered mini-sermons. We tell ourselves things like, if I do that, God will get me. Oh, that goes against my Christian principles. Oh, this might hurt people around me or... I'll be embarrassed 
or it will hurt my self-esteem, or I'll hate myself in the morning. Some or all of those things might be true. But Paul says they're inadequate. They do not kill sin. It's nothing more than taking your temptation to the law. Fix this for me, law. It's using fear to deter yourself. Fear is not a motivator. It can be. It can be an instant motivator, but it's not a long-term motivator. Or to use the logic of the gospel. Look at what God's done for me, and this is how I respond. Take your temptations to the gospel. Find God's love for us in sending His Son to the cross and His Spirit into our hearts, showing us the vileness of our sin, motivating motivating us to love our Savior, and removing our desire one little speck at a time to serve our flesh. In verse 14, Paul says, if we are led by the Spirit of God, then we are sons of my translation, or daughters of God. Sinclair Ferguson in his book titled Children of the Living God says, the notion that we are children of God, his sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the Goal, the whole goal of redemption. Think about that for a minute. If Ferguson is right, and I believe he is, then all the things that God has done for this entire creation are for his children, for his heirs. Everything. Adoption was a pretty customary legal procedure in Roman society. It's, it's customary today. In that time, adoption occurred usually when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would adopt someone as an heir, a child, a youth, sometimes even an adult. And when adoption occurred, several things happened, immediately happened. The status of the new son changed. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and instantly became heir of all that the father had. Third, his new father became immediately liable for all of his actions, his debts, his crimes etc., etc., etc. And fourth, the new son also had obligations to honor and please his father. You know, as Americans, we fought the idea of a king. We declared our independence from a king. But we need to refamiliarize ourselves with the idea of a king and a kingdom a monarchy, what it means to have a king. Think about Prince Harry 
and Prince William of England for just a minute. Prince Harry, the younger of the two, who married American Meghan Markle, they left the royal family to pursue their own ambitions. Now, they had a responsibility as heirs to the crown, an obligation to be ambassadors of the crown, loyal and faithful to the king or the queen. They were to be representatives of the king or the queen throughout the world. It's the same charge you and I have as Christians. We're ambassadors, representatives created in the king's image. We represent the great king to a dying world. And if the Spirit leads us, we would never, like Prince Henry, turn our backs on the crown to pursue selfish ambition. We are children of the living God, the King who gave his life so that he might adopt us into his royal family. In verse 17, Paul says, we have this new inheritance. The Spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance, guaranteeing the harvest to follow. The Spirit of God that resides in us, in His children, assures us that we are God's children and heirs. Our adoption is true. It's real. It's not just some idea in your head. But it's not yet complete. We are not home yet. We are waiting for glory, waiting in hope. But in the meantime, the Spirit of God empowers us and enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Like a child. An ancient Israelite would never consider that. We have been blessed with that privilege. Daddy, I need you. Daddy, I'm hurting. Daddy, I've done wrong. Daddy, I just don't know what to do. Verse 18 also says, there'll be a lot of suffering in the meantime. But press on in hope, child of God, because glory is coming. See, the doctrine of adoption is beautiful. It's a unifying concept of the Christian life, and it touches on so many key concepts. The nature of God, salvation, authority, identity, ecclesiology, purpose, morality, destiny, worship, prayer, suffering, and glory. Being adopted by God should change everything for you because it does. Don't just believe in the doctrine. Allow it to change your heart and shape your worldview. If you're wondering what your sanctification is supposed to be all about, I'm telling you right here is the key. You are children of the living God, representing him. Allow it to change your heart and to shape your worldview. John echoes 
Paul's thoughts in 1 John 3, my Sunday school class, we spent a long time here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, beloved. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that we will share in our brother Jesus' sufferings and that if we do so, we will also share in his glory. But is it worth it? Is the inheritance Christians have, has it been worth all the hardship in your life? Has it been worth all the pain and suffering that you've endured? Many people, probably even some people we know, might answer no. It's not worth it. They profess faith as Christians, and they might seek to live God's way for a while. But in time, they find that their present sufferings are not worth it. They fall away. They offer any number of reasons why. If God were so good, why did he let such and such happen? If God really loved me, why did he let so-and-so pass? Or I'm just so busy right now. My life is hectic. I just can't find time to spend with God. Paul has a much different view. He answers the question with an emphatic yes. He says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Now you might wonder, you might ask yourself at times, why does Mike talk about suffering all the time? It seems like it shows up in every one of his sermons. It's because suffering is a direct result of sin. And I told you, preachers are supposed to talk about sin. But if I tell you repeatedly, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. And because very often, when we hear things about ourselves that are not good, it's pretty easy to tune that out. I'm an expert at it. Just ask my wife. I'm an expert. You might start to think as you tune me out, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or if you knew what was going on in my life right now, you wouldn't say such cruel things to me. And you might be right about that. You might be suffering right now and your life might quietly be in terrible shape, unknown to anyone but you and God. Whatever's going on in your life may or may not be directly related to sin in your life, and it might not have anything to do with some sin you have specifically committed, but instead it's come into your life for someone else's sin. It's come into your life because we live in a fallen world. Sin 
produces suffering. And everyone in this room will continue to experience suffering. Again, either because of your sin or because of the world's sin. Wherever suffering is found, sin lies just beneath it. So I prefer to talk about suffering because that's real and that's where we live. That affects you in ways that me just telling you, you're a sinner, me, I'm a sinner. When I talk about suffering, we know that because that's our experience. Think back to the fall for just a moment. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world with direct and intimate access to God. And when sin made its way into the world, what did Adam do? <laughs> God, it was the woman. He starts shifting the blame. Sin is already just in Adam's response beginning to have its way. He is going to put the blame on his wife, this beautiful creature that God gave him so that he wouldn't be alone, this beautiful creature that God made from Adam's own flesh. God told them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam was willing to let her die because of sin so that he wouldn't have to. Well, with this one little slip, God curses Adam and Eve. Adam would work by the sweat of his brow to eat. Eve would suffer great pains when giving birth. The serpent was cursed. They were expelled from the beautiful garden. One son murders another and was further banished into darkness. What kind of suffering do you suppose just these few events incurred and produced? And sin became so prevalent and so widespread that God was sorry that he made man and he ended up flooding the earth. And the rest of the biblical story, page after page, describes man's sin after sin, suffering and more suffering and more suffering. Sin and suffering are linked, like redemption and judgment. They just go together. And you know what else? It wasn't just humans. It wasn't just snakes that were cursed that day. God cursed the ground. He condemned the creation because of the entrance of sin. Even the creation suffers from Adam's fall. And here in Romans, Paul says, if you know where you're heading in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pain aren't worth it. Your inheritance is too glorious for words. Or to put it another way, from another one of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told. 
which man may not utter. Now the Apostle John is another who got a glimpse into heaven. And he writes the best he can with metaphor to describe what he saw. They're metaphors. Streets paved with gold, walls full of precious stones. They're metaphors because what he saw was simply too glorious for words. As Paul says, what he heard cannot be told. So what is this glorious inheritance towards which we walk? Sometimes with very painful steps. That's what Paul's laying out in 19 through 23. Their creation waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. Tim Keller says, there is a glory coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls upon us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify it along with us. We will be a part of the creation being renewed, restored, and redeemed. We be careful there. We don't redeem anything. Only Christ does. But we'll be here when it happens. We'll be a part of it. See, the creation right now is in bondage to decay. It's caught in this continuous cycle of new growth followed by death and decomposition. And it's wonderful to see how the creation, this life-giving quality that it possesses, continually seeking to reestablish itself, continually seeking to recreate itself, bringing new life out of death. Flowers grow from the fertilizer of dead organisms, for example. But the whole universe is deteriorating and running down, losing more energy than it can generate. Everything wears down and dies. As we know it today, creation is this realm of pain and suffering. It has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Relentless suffering comes from first to last as things decay, as life is born in childbirth perhaps, and life is lost in death. There's suffering and misery. In this creation, no experience is not somehow affected by sin and suffering. But none of this is the last word. Like us, the creation itself longs to be free from this world of sin and suffering. The creation longs for God to dwell with his people in a land flowing with milk and honey, uncorrupted by sin. The creation longs for the day when he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God when he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. That's just a little peek at what glory is. What glory waits for us. The creation itself will be liberated and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Instead of frustration, there will be fulfillment. 
When we consider the majesty and the greatness, if you've traveled this country, if you've traveled the world, and the things you've seen, oceans, mountains, valleys, forests, clear streams, just one unimaginable sight after another. It staggers the mind if we think that as amazing as those things might be today, what they'll be like in glory. When the creation itself is redeemed, the land will be free to be itself. It will be free to flow with milk and honey. It will be free to perform again its function in creation, to be excellent and unincorporated, uncorrupted, the way God intended it to be. Instead of decay, there will be strength and newness. Right now, things get older, faded, weaker, more incoherent every moment. Everyone in this room can testify to that, right? We get older. We lose our strength. We begin to fade. We eventually get a little bit incoherent. That's why the best metaphor for the current state of creation is as being in childbirth. The painful pangs that this world experiences are not meaningless. The world is giving birth to a new version of itself. And Paul knows we're not yet in glory, so he writes in reality about the present and the gospel optimism of the future. Christians are people of hope because of what they have now and what is promised to come. And it is this hope that Paul focuses on in 24 and 25. By hope, Paul is not speaking of wishful thinking. He's speaking of the confident future that we possess. Our redemption involves past events, present beliefs, and the promise of a glorious future. That security is what Paul means by being saved in hope. But we've not experienced all of that yet. And so we must wait patiently. And one day we will inherit the new world. We cannot see it. We cannot touch it. We cannot taste it or smell it. But we will. One day faith will end in sight. Soon the creation and the redeemed will experience the end of groaning and experience the glory. But until then, we wait. And Paul goes on to say that this does not mean we just sit and twiddle our thumbs and wait. It doesn't mean that we're helpless against our suffering. We have the intercession of the Spirit of God living within us. We have these promises, these extravagant promises of God's. And there are days when we realize we've grown more Christ-like. Perhaps we notice a way in which we're less flawed than we were. Maybe we're a little more loving than we used to be. Maybe we're a little more patient than we used to be. Maybe we act just a little bit more godly than we used to. And yet we still endure discipline, and we still endure suffering rooted in sin. In moments of pain and suffering, we have to remind ourselves that these challenges are just 
part of what it means to be Christ's family. All, all people suffer, not just Christians. But your suffering and my suffering marks us out. As Christ heirs, it has purpose. So we wait eagerly, and we wait in hope patiently. C.S. Lewis said, God will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects to God perfectly though, of course, on a smaller scale, his boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and at times very painful. But that is what we are here for. Nothing less. God means what he says. So as you contemplate the coming of Christ this Advent season, I hope you will also consider his life, his death, his resurrection. Consider the suffering that he endured to bring us to this glory. Consider that your salvation involves so much more than not being cast into the lake of fire. And as I close, know that your hope is sure. It cannot fail if it rests in Christ. When God made a promise to Abraham, to bless him, he took an oath. And he staked his very existence on that oath. And in the new covenant, God gave up his life in order that all these things would be yours. To ensure <coughs> that the promises he made will come true. Your hope rests on a sure foundation. It's guaranteed. So as I close today, I want to leave you with the words of Paul from the end of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom your captive people, ransom the creation, set us free to the hope that we long for. Set us free to be the people and the creation 
were intended to be. Pray with me. Father, bind these words to our hearts as we wait with hope for the return of Christ, our joint heir and our King. Twenty-seven books in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of them, possibly 14 if he had anything to do with Hebrews. We better listen to the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Michael. Let's all stand and sing our closing hymn. Christ whose glory fills the skies Christ the everlasting light, the sun of righteousness arise and triumph o'er these shades of night. Come thou long awaited one in the fullness of this heart bound up by shame and I will never be the same so here I wait in hope of you oh my soul's longing through and through and they spring from on Receive now the benediction of the Lord. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Go now in peace. <laughs>